the Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast is a verse-by-verse study with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. These audio sessions were recorded over a three-year period during Shabbat services at Beit Hillel, located in Tacoma, Washington. All right, we're starting on page 30 um, because we didn't quite finish off the pages that we handed out last week. And uh, we kind of ran out of time. We are slogging our way through these uh, genealogies. Uh, the more I studied today, and, and I, I was behind the schedule because I spent t- Monday and Tuesday trying to get my website back in order after it had been hacked to pieces. Uh, and uh, fortunately, I have a an acquaintance, a friend who is a top-notch programmer. He lives in Winnipeg, so we're doing the long-distance thing, and he's helping me figure it out. But it's amazing, you know, how technology can save you so much time and can eat a lot more of it up if you're not careful. But I was thinking today as I was studying, there has to be more to this genealogy than we're seeing. There just has to be. I mean, it's just a gut feeling. I don't have any data to... uh, substantiate that but I just keep thinking is there something here we're missing because there are so there's so many on the surface there's so much trouble fitting these pieces they just don't fit it's like you have uh, pieces of three different puzzles all mixed together in a box and you're trying to figure out which ones fit with what and and it's frustrating and yet we have to believe that it, it is the word of God and there is something here that we that we need to know and understand um, and so we continue on. But maybe someday, somewhere, either one of you or someone will figure out the uh, what's really going on here. And, uh, you know, if someone does, please tell me because I will rest more easily. All right. We're in the middle of this genealogy. We're breaking right into the middle of it. Uh, page 30. Asa, and I put in square brackets Asaph because that's exactly what the Greek has. Your English translation has changed it to Asa in order to uh, conform to what we read in Chronicles. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, Joram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah was the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Now, one thing that I haven't said along the way, and what I probably should have, is that the English translation that I'm using is the New American Standard with some uh, with some tweaking, uh, much to the chagrin, I'm sure, of, of the Lockman Foundation. They say we're not supposed to use their translation unless we use it exactly as they give it. But I changed Jesus to Yeshua and Christ to Messiah. And, you know, if they, if they want to bother me about that, then I'll change. But um, it doesn't, the Greek doesn't really say Asaph was the father of Jehoshaphat. Literally, it says Asa begat Jehoshaphat. And so the reason I bring that up is because when we come to verse 16, we're going to see a change. And that change is important for us to recognize. All right. Uh, so, uh, once again, Matthew follows the list of First Chronicles 3. And uh, Jehoshaphat's achievements are lauded in detail. And I'm just giving some few, a few little snippets here. Joram is not to be confused with the son of Ahab, was a wicked king who reigned, should be four, eight years. Matthew appears to skip three kings of Judah in his list. And uh, you can go to First Chronicles and see how that works out. Joram is also spelled Jehoram. I can't explain why he would do that. 
why he would skip. But he does. Several options have been given for why Matthew would skip three generations, but the most probable is that in his, in, that in his desire to arrange his list in three groups of 14, he excluded three kings whom God put to death for idolatry. So he chose three kings that were, you know, bad kings, and he just doesn't list them. First Kings 20, 21 records a curse upon the house of Ahab. And Matthew may have considered the curse to have extended to the third or fourth generation is another explanation. Needing to compact the, that genealogy to conform to the scheme of 14 generations, Matthew excluded three kings whose evil reputation was confirmed by divine retribution. We should be reminded that omission of names from a genealogy for whatever purpose was not uncommon in the ancient world. And I, I just looked up as many as I could and uh, used commentaries, obviously, to help me do that. And uh, here are some where you have genealogies, and it's obvious that certain generations are missing. So it's, it's not something just Matthew is doing. This was understood by the sages who teach that sons of sons are sons. And uh, I was reading this uh, Kiddushin 4 again today, and it's in the discussion of the, uh, the commandment, the first mitzvah. By the way, what is the first mitzvah in the Bible? Yeah, be fruitful and multiply is the first commandment in the Bible. So they were asking, okay, how do we fulfill that commandment? What happens if a man never marries? Can he fulfill that commandment? You know, what happens if a man marries but his, child, his wife is unable to have children? Uh, so forth and so on. And they come to the conclusion at the end of all of their discussions that the sons of sons are sons. Uh, of course, they have said you can't. It says you, you should be fruitful and multiply. They take that to mean you can't just have two. You have to have more than two. So they're saying, well, what about somebody who only had two? They come to the conclusion, sons of sons are sons. In other words, you get to count your grandkids. So even even in that, the, the rulings were that you could count your grandkids as sons. Now, that being the case, it wouldn't be un, un, unnatural then for somebody to say the son of, you know, you know, I have a daughter and her name is Revi. Oh, okay, you say, well, it's granddaughter. Okay, it's granddaughter, but still daughter. So that is is not uncommon in the listing of genealogies that generations can be skipped and someone could be said to be the son of such and such a person when really he's the great-grandson. Okay. Um, Hezekiah is known in the biblical history as an outstanding king who was faithful to the Lord in his reign. Second Kings gives this notice. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. That's a pretty high recommendation. The sages also identified Hezekiah as indicative of the character of the Messiah. In fact, they even say that this, as some would indicate that Hezekiah was a kind of Messiah. Jotham also received a good report, but Ahaz is considered an apostate. So you have these kings, some were good and some were bad and some were in between. And of course, what is the, what is the mark even of those who were good? It's, it says often over and over again, he did everything that was right in the sight of the Lord, except he did not destroy the high places. The high places continued to be a snare to Israel. Okay, verse 10. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, Ammon the father of Josiah. Manasseh was the most wicked of kings of Judah, according to the history. However, it may be that some believed he repented at the end of his life, and the sages debate whether, in fact, Manasseh's repentance was genuine, and that, therefore, he was received as worthy at the end of his life. 
for M and the older Greek manuscripts have various uh, spellings. And by the way, when you're trying to look these things up, if you're looking them up in the Greek or the Hebrew, there's two or three ways to spell them in different... I mean, the names are not spelled the same all the way through the generations. They are just not. And that's just part of, I guess, the ancient world. We, we, we get upset if somebody misspells our name. But in the ancient world, names were not... That was not such a big thing. Verse 11, Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation of Babylon. Now, according to First Chronicles, Josiah had four sons. They were Jehonan, and the second was Jehoiakim, the third was Zedekiah, and the fourth was Shalom. And it says the sons of Jehoiakim were Jeconiah. So here again, we have Josiah being the father of Jeconiah, but Jeconiah is really his grandson. Maybe Matthew... Uh, takes care of that by saying, and his brothers. He's, he's letting us know he's talking in, in a broader perspective. How many of you have ever gotten mixed up with Jehoiakim and Jehoiakin and Jeconiah? Yeah, don't, don't they get mixed? Well, guess what? We're not alone, I found out. Even the biblical writers themselves seem to interchange, and I've given you the data here. I mean, you can when you start trying to figure out who Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim are, you find out that they are mixed up. And one of the problems is both of them had a son by the name of Zedekiah. So not only not only are their names very close except for one letter, but also they have other names by which they are referred. And they both had sons by the same name. So it's no wonder that people, you know, when you say Jedekiah, the son of Jehoiakim, and somebody hears you say Jehoiakim because it sounds so close, it's no wonder that there could be some confusion in the listings. Um, it's noted that, uh, Zed- uh, that Jeconiah was the prisoner. And it may be that this is p- what prompted uh, uh, Matthew to include at the time of the deportation of, the, of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar bound Jehoiakim, also known as Eliakim, in his chains and brought him to Babylon. Once again, we see that Matthew is speaking in general terms when he states that X was the father of Y. His sense must be that X was the progenitor of Y, meaning that he is listing family trees without necessarily naming every generation. Again, his motivation is to stick to the 14, 14, 14 to emphasize David. We may briefly refer here to the prophecy of Jeremiah 22.30 that, quote, no man of his, that is, Coniah, which is another way of saying Jeconiah, it's a short form of Jeconiah, no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. Now this is one, I don't know if any of you have encountered anti-missionaries. These are Jews for Judaism. Um, they took that name in contradiction to Jews for Jesus. Jews for Judaism who go about uh, attempting to persuade, particularly to persuade Jewish people who have come to faith in the Messiah that they made a bad decision and get them to turn back upon their decision to confess Yeshua. This is one of their arguments. So look. Jeremiah 22 says that no man of Jeconiah's descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. And then they turn to Matthew 1 and say, look, your Yeshua is descended from Jeconiah. So he certainly could not be a legitimate king. The temple scroll in, uh, in the Qumran scrolls alludes to this verse from Jeremiah. I will be their God and they my people, but the king whose heart and eyes horishly depart from my commandments will never have a descendant sitting on the throne of his fathers. Indeed, I shall forever cut off his seed from ruling Israel. So it may have been that in the time of, of Yeshua and previous to that, there was this sense that, that the Jeconiah's offspring were not 
no longer legitimate kings of Judah. Um, is that is it possible? And I'm just I'm just throwing this out as a thought. Is that is it possible that that's one of the reasons Luke goes through Nathan, maybe to avoid that that controversy? Of course, that's a whole other issue. How could he do that? We suggested through Leverett marriage. However, Jeremiah's prophecy, however, relates to the fact that following the exile, no earthly king would rule over Judah, and history has proven this to be the case. In other words, it, he says no one will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. And from that, from the time of Jeconiah, you have no more ruling in Judah. That is, earthly kingdom is has not been reestablished. It may be that Matthew's addition of and his brothers refers to all of the people of Judah who were eventually taken into captivity. The sages also considered the prophecy of Jeremiah but concluded that the exile itself was sufficient punishment. In other words, the, 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 the sages themselves had the same problem. You know why? Because they said the Messiah had to come through the line of David. And Jeconiah is in the line of David. And he was one of the kings. So what are they going to do? They concluded that the exile itself was atonement for the sins of Jeconiah. Rabbi Yochanan said, Exile atones for everything, for it is written, Thus saith the Lord, Write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. So that's the verse that we're talking about that, that the sages quote here. Whereas after he, that is the king, was exiled, it is written, and the sons of Jeconiah, the same as Asir, Shetail, his son, etc., he, in other words, it says, doesn't the prophecy of Jeremiah say he's not going to have any kids? Then you read in Chronicles, he had kids. Write this man childless. Then he has children. He was called a seer, meaning in prison, because his mother conceived him in prison. Shetael, the sages consider this a second name for the same person, because God did not plant him. A play on the name Shaltael, meaning Al-Shatlu, not planted. So they, they, they play on the word. Uh, in the in the way that others are planted. We know by tradition that a woman cannot conceive in a standing position, yet she did conceive standing. In other words, they said she was in prison. How else should she have given birth? There wasn't room to lay down. Another interpretation, Shata'il, means Sha'al El, to ask of God, because God obtained of the heavenly court absolution for his oath. Zerubbabel was so called because he was sown in, in Babylon. Zerah, seed, Levavel, of Babylon. But his real name was Nehemiah, the son of Hachaliah. So what are they saying? Look, he did have kids. And why did he have, why did he have kids? Why did Jeconiah have kids? Because apparently the, the oath that God took against him was atoned for, was taken care of. Now, the sages are saying by the exile. Rabbi Tonkum, uh, ben Rabbi Yermiahu said, he was called a seer because he was fettered in the prison. He was called Shetail because from him the kingdom of the house of David was replanted. So even the sages have, have say, even the, even the Jewish sages say, no, 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 the line of Je- Jeconiah continues on. So I, I find, you know, every time I hear that from the uh, missionaries, I say, wait a minute. Our own, our own rabbis have told us that, that, that that's not the case, that the seed of, of Jeconiah eventually is returned. So what is the prophecy of Jeremiah? It has to do with the in, ensuing years. And now for what? Um, 2,000, 2,500 years, there have been no legitimate kings sitting upon the throne of Judah. So that, that is in fulfillment of that prophecy. Thus, the sages also recognized that the prophecy against Jeconiah was to be understood as temporal, that is, pertaining to the fact that the throne of Judah was deposed following the exile, but that Jeconiah did have children and that the Davidic line of the Messiah was intact. 
So apparently Matthew takes the same viewpoint. The deportation, that word is found only here, and we have in Hebrew, galut is the normal word for the exile from Galah, was considered God's punishment upon Israel by the prophets and so interpreted by the sages. What you remember for what sin particularly? They didn't give the land its Sabbaths. You would think that the, that the prophets would have found a more egregious sin. <laughs> but um, if you understand uh, how the Sabbath principle pervades and protects all of the other commandments, then you would under, understand that. As the saying goes, it's not so much that Israel has kept the Sabbath, but that the Sabbath has kept Israel. And so, you know, the sabbatical years and the Jubilee year allowed the society of Israel to maintain uh, the kind of society that God intended. In other words, it didn't allow people to, to monopolize. It didn't allow moguls to scoop up land and become uh, tyrants economically and so forth. But when, when these laws were not practiced, then Israel did become like the other nations in many ways. Matthew will develop this theme more as he writes of Yeshua's descent to Egypt and his return to the land. The exile of God's people out of the land is analogous to the exile of Adam and Chava from the garden. God had promised to put his presence in the land forever, and therefore being exiled from the land was to, to be in measure separated from his blessing. Conversely, to return to the land was a restoration of the covenant blessings. It's amazing to me, and this is something, you know, that has not been emphasized in historical Christianity. It's amazing to me. When you study the, the, the uh, prophets, how much is tied to the land in terms, you know, when Israel is committing idolatry, she pollutes the, the land. When Israel's uh, daughters are playing the harlot, they pollute the land. And uh, Israel is exiled because she did not give the land its rest. And so when, uh, when God brings Israel back to himself, what, what, what is the obvious reality of that is he brings her back to the land as well. Why was this so, so de-emphasized in early Christianity in the 3rd and 4th century? More than likely because the, the, the Christianity was, was uh, birthed out of a Platonic Greek philosophy. Or at least it had imbibed that. It had taken that in. That, that the material is, so, there's something bad with the material stuff of this earth. What we try to do is escape materialism. And we try to live in an ethereal spiritual world. So you couldn't have anything that God was doing in the future tied to this piece of real estate. And so you can see how, how it was so de-emphasized. Sure, it, it is entirely re, uh, replacement theology, but replacement theology has, has its seedbed in the idea that everything in the Bible is non everything of importance in the Bible is non-physical, right? So you have a physical people Israel, and she's replaced by a spiritual people Israel. You have a physical land Israel, that's replaced by a spiritual land heaven. You have material food. You don't need that because you have spiritual food. You know, when I'm hungry, that spiritual food doesn't doesn't satisfy my stomach. It may satisfy my heart, but it doesn't satisfy my stomach eventually. You know, but 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 uh, as I've said often, the Jewish point of view was always that when God created it and said it was good, that's exactly what He meant. He didn't say it was of some good. He said it's good. He's good, and so you know, we don't ever have any trouble sitting down and eating together, do we? I mean, that's and uh, I'm reminded that uh, Judy and. 
and Buzz aren't here tonight because they're uh, doing last preparations for heading to the land tomorrow uh, morning. So Baruch Hashem, maybe maybe someday we'll all go. We'll all just take a take a trip and go. So God had promised to put His presence in the land forever. He said, "I will put my eyes and my ears and my heart there." In the prayer uh, or in the response to Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple. Conversely, to return to the land was a restoration of covenant blessing. Matthew's point of view is that in Yeshua, there is the inevitable restoration of Israel to her covenant. And this involves a return from exile, both in theological as well as national dimensions. Paul did not make a difference between, he didn't differentiate between those. The whole package is necessary. Not only does the heart need to be changed, but they need to return to the land. Uh, We need to return to the land and do what he has told us to do. All right, verse 12. By the way, just interrupt me with your hand up or, or with a comment, and I'll repeat it for the tape if there's no other mic. All right. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shatael, Shatael the father of Zerubbabel. The genealogies of Matthew and Luke converge at the names of Shatael and Zerubbabel. Though Luke has a different father for Shealtiel, uh, Neri, and Ressa is the son of Zerubbabel. So here again, you know, I thought there has to be some way to untangle this, and I can't find any way. I don't know. I mean, I can propose ideas, but according to First Chronicles 3, 17 through 19, at least in the Masoretic text, Zerubbabel was the son of Padiah, which might indicate that there were more than one person with the name of Zerubbabel, or else a Leverite marriage has taken place. The Septuagint of First Chronicles 17 through 19, however, it should say 3, 17 through 19. First Chronicles 3, 17 through 19. The Septuagint, however, has Zerubbabel as the son of Sheath. And Matthew follows this source. So we know why Matthew wrote what he did. He followed the Septuagint of 1 Chronicles 3. The problem is, is that the Septuagint of 1 Chronicles 3 doesn't match the Hebrew. Once again, we, we're, we're, we have that dilemma. Does the Septuagint uh, have something that is more accurate than what the Hebrew had? Okay, well, that's a good question. It is also possible that Zerubbabel is seen as the son of Sheatiel, of whom no other son is recorded, because he succeeded him on the throne. So Sheatiel didn't have a son to take the throne, and Zerubbabel was the next in line, so he counted him as his son. Now, that's not, un- that's not unlikely, because in the ancient world, oftentimes a king would adopt if it wasn't his natural son, would adopt the one who followed him on the throne so that everyone would know uh, you can't, you can't uh, raise a coup against the new king because if you do, you're going to have my family t- to deal with. In other words, he, he's not a foreigner. He's not a, an outsider. He's my son. And that's possible. Zerubbabel, the descendant of David, was the Persian governor of Jerusalem following the exiles. He was viewed as a messianic figure, should be for he is the servant of the Lord and is also called the Lord's signet ring. Likewise, Zechariah speaks of Zerubbabel as one through whom the Lord would rebuild the temple and reestablish the nation. This all was not lost by the sages. For instance, in Midrash Rabbah we read, For who hath despised the day of small things? Quote from Zechariah 4.10. Also, who art thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? That's verse 7. Furthermore, the royal Messiah will be descended from the tribe of Judah, as it says, and it shall come to pass in that day that the root of Jesse, that standeth for an ensign of the peoples, unto him shall the nation seek. Isaiah 9.10. Thus, from the tribe of Judah were descended Solomon, who built the first temple, and Zerubbabel, who built the second temple. And from him will be descended the royal Messiah, who will rebuild the temple. Thus, we find that these two tribes, Judah and Levi, 
are the most distinguished in their lineage of all Israel, since in them were royalty and priesthood. So here we have the rabbis also saying that the Messiah is uh, a descendant of Zerubbabel. Yes, question. <clears throat> Leveret marriage. Well, a Leveret marriage would be where you have a brother, a, a man dies without having children. And his brother comes in and performs the rite of a kinsman redeemer. Now, when you when you list the genealogy, do you list it in the brother's name or do you list it in the deceased's name? It was not uncommon to it was not uncommon to list them in the brother's name, even though the children were reckoned as his brother's children. So the, the, here's how you may have some crossing together of family lines, and we've suggested that that possibly happened even back with David. Solomon and Nathan. Solomon is chosen by Matthew, and Nathan is chosen by Luke as the progenitor of uh, Yeshua. So uh, that's at least one explanation. That's uh, some would say far-fetched, but I don't. I don't know. Sometimes when you you know when you come up against these things, you have to reach real far if, if you don't have anything closer. <laughs> Zerubbabel was the father of Avihud. Avihud, the father Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. From this point on in Matthew's genealogy, we have no record from the Tanakh to compare, though the Greek names he lists do occur in the Septuagint. I mean, not in one place, but throughout the Septuagint. These are not uncommon names. On this basis, some have suggested that Matthew just made up his list. And I've, I've said before, I think that's, that's illogical. I don't, I don't think he could have gotten away with that. Now, some would say, well, they were made up in the 4th century or the 3rd century. Well... Okay, it, you know, you don't have any data for that either. So, as far as we know, the early church fathers, even the early second century church fathers, seem to know this genealogy of Matthew. They seem to talk about it. So, if it was made up in the late second and early third century. And I was just reading a book last night, that I, uh, another book that I just got, and uh, makes a wonderful case for the fact that, that scholarship continues to push the time of the separation, the clear separation of the synagogue and the church further and further. Not earlier and earlier, but later and later. You know, it used to be that everybody thought, oh, by the time you come to just pre-destruction times, you know, in the 60s, in, in the era of Paul, that the church and the synagogue were essentially separate entities. Now everyone recognizes that that's not the case. So everybody thought, well, it happened in the 80s and the 90s. Now everybody recognizes that also is not the case. And uh, more and more uh, uh, noteworthy scholars are coming out and saying, you know what? It's really hard to differentiate uh, uh, early Christianity from, Juda- from some Judaisms even into the middle of the second century and later. Where do they draw those conclusions from? Uh, the question is, where do, from, from where do they draw those conclusions? Um, unfortunately, the, the early conclusions that were drawn that the separation happened early was because scholars didn't read the Jewish works. They only read about the Jewish works. So you have early German scholars who were saying, this rabbi say this and the rabbi say that, and everybody was taking their word for it. Then when the scholars started to go back and, re- and read them themselves... Uh, that made a huge difference. I mean, in the course of just doing these notes, and I've been using you know several of the major commentaries on Matthew, I cannot take even though even though they're top-notch scholars, I still have to check out everything they say because um, that we just have this paradigm that has come down to us, and sometimes people just think without checking. You know, so th- there were numbers of statements made in one commentary and referenced the Mishnah, and so I thought, okay, well that sounds right. I looked up the Mishnah, and it didn't say that. It could be implied, it could be inferred, but it didn't say that. 
See, you can't say, well, the rabbis believe thus and such just because you infer it from a given text. So that's one reason. The second reason is that the rabbinic literature started to be translated. You know, one of the reasons that the rabbinic literature was not well known by, you know, many of the church scholars in the last three, four hundred years is because it's all in Hebrew. And it's not, and it's, or Aramaic. And it's not easy Hebrew or Aramaic. You know, the, the, the rabbis speak in short abbreviated terms. They expect you to have this depth and wealth of background. So they have all of these little terms that, who you know, you have to have a dictionary just for the abbreviations. And uh, once, the, once they started to be tra- translated into German and into French and into English eventually, and English has been the last, right? We still don't have the Jerusalem Talmud, for instance, complete in English. The Schottenstein has just come out with the first volume. I mean, that's a great breakthrough. We'll have the Jerusalem Talmud now in English. For those of us that are not real fluent in Talmudic Hebrew and Aramaic, that's a huge advancement. We'll be able to actually look and read it ourselves. Up until that time, you know. So, uh, what's happened is, is that a few noted scholars said, who, who took the time and learned how to study and really studied these, came, came back and said, wait a minute, that's not what it says. That's not what they're saying. This is taken out of context. One of the breakthrough books, of course, was J.P. Sanders' book, Paul and Palestinian Judaism. And whether or not you agree with his work, this is back in the 80s, 1985 or something, uh, Sanders' uh, Paul and Palestinian Judaism was, was a revolutionary book because it basically turned on its head most everything that people were believing about first century Judaisms. Even the fact that I say Judaisms, you know, and now the question is, should we say Christianities? And probably so. Probably so. It's foolish for us to think that in the uh, in the late first century, early second century, you have still have a monolithic. Uh, did, did you even have monolithic in the time of Yeshua? I mean, you have you apparently have Paul saying that there are these people over here that you know there are these influencers in Galatia that are trying to teach you a, another gospel. But I think they call themselves believers in Yeshua. I don't think they were outsiders. He doesn't. He doesn't talk to them as though they're outsiders in the sense of of, uh, of being deniers of Yeshua. But uh, so yeah, I, I think probably you have many strands that begin to emerge by the time you come to the second century. And the very fact that we talk about Judaisms and Christianities tells us that we're at least being a little more uh, true to the data that we have. Uh, Bart Ehrman and others would would say, well. Uh, Tim, you, you, you are monolithic right now because you think there's only one Christianity that's right. Well, I always think there was only one, if I, I'm using quote marks for those of you who are listening to the tape, uh, only one Christianity that's right. You know, there's only one truth. There's not multiple truths that are contradictory. You understand what I'm saying? But do I think, do, do I think we have, uh, have it all right? Absolutely not. Uh, but, uh, but I think there is a right way and a wrong way. So I'm not pluralistic in that regard. But I'm saying that we talk we, – excuse me for taking just a minute on this. But we do this all the time, don't we? We say Christianity. Stop and think about that. When you use the word Christianity in a singular form in America today, what do you mean? 
I mean, we have this ethereal idea that everybody understands when we say Christianity, but Christianity is different for an Episcopal, different for a, a Catholic, different for a Jehovah's Witness, different for a Mormon. They would all consider themselves Christians and part of Christianity. But but the way they would identify that is entirely different. And and in the broadest strokes, we would also consider ourselves to be part of Christianity. In in the broadest strokes of things, because we follow this person by the name of, of Yeshua, who is the Messiah, who is the Christ. And yet, there is a lot of people who would call themselves Christians who wouldn't identify with us. And probably we with them over issues of theology and, and belief. This teaching is one of the 218 audio sessions found in the five-volume teaching series titled A Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew by Tim Haig from Tor Resource. This product is the fruit of over three years of studying and teaching through the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse and from a Messianic perspective. The five-volume set is available in softcover book or digitally as PDF files. To order your copy today, visit torresource.com. So all that to say, um, but you come to the you come to the fourth century, and in some cases even up to the fifth century, and some have even extended to the sixth century. You still have the church fathers, the the the, the bishops, writing cyclicals to to their elders and to the the cardinals, writing cyclicals to the bishops, saying, "Whatever you do, tell the people if they worship on Sabbath, they're going to get kicked out." I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Why would they be concerned about that in the fourth century? You know, all, still up into the late third and fourth century, you have you have people following the ways of Torah. Maybe not the majority, but you have it. So, so the separation is not nearly as clear cut and automatic as as we once uh, were taught. Verse thirteen. So we have no record from this point on, in terms of being able to go back to Chronicles and see how it jives. About 500 years lie between Zerubbabel and Joseph, and Matthew lists only nine names. So that's clearly not enough time. Once again, it is clear that Matthew is not giving a comprehensive genealogical listing. Avihud is not listed as a son of Zerubbabel in First Chronicles. Elohim was the name of the puppet ruler under the thumb of Pharaoh Necha or Necho sometimes. Hezekiah had a royal chamberlain by the same name of whom Isaiah prophesied. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open, which sounds very much like Matthew 16:19. said of Peter, I will give you the keys to the kingdom, and what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and that kind of thing. Lucas, another Eliakim, the son of Melea in his genealogy, but definitely not the same one that Matthew lists. We have a prophet in the days of Zedekiah by the name of Azur. I wonder if he uh, ate health food. We have a co-op by the name of Azur. And there is an Ezer, which in the Septuagint is spelled close to what the name we have here, Azur. The Dutale Matthew adds a name at this point. Avner, the son of Avihu, presumably to increase the total of names in the final section of Matthew's genealogy to the desired number of 14. On what basis this name is added, however, is not known. The name Abner is well known from the time of David, and an Abner is listed as the father of 
Yahasiel of the tribe of Benjamin in 1 Chronicles 27. But even if this family name were presumed to be carried to later generations, this would not work for Matthew's listing since he is intent on showing lineage to the tribe of Judah, not Benjamin. So I don't know where, where this Matthew, this Hebrew uh, version of, of Matthew came up with adding this name uh, Avner. I have no idea. And I, don't, I haven't read anybody that does either. Maybe they just thought it was a nice name and they'd throw it in there. Maybe, however, maybe there was an early tradition that uh, indicated that. I checked all of the sources that I have for Greek manuscripts, and there was no Avner listed in any variant anywhere. So no other Greek manuscript knows of this uh, person, Avner. 14. Azor was the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Elihud. Isn't this exciting, these genealogies? Um, it does kind of get you back into the dust and dirt of the, uh, of, the, of the whole thing. If nothing else, we learn this, that Yeshua has come the same way, or with the same appearance at least, in the same fashion as we are. We have this genealogy that ties us back to family and to culture and to so forth. And so did he. The source of these names in verse 14 in Matthew's genealogy is unknown. Zadok is the most well-known of the names, being a priest in David's court. There was also a Zadok who was the grandfather of Jotham, listed by Matthew in 1.9. Some have suggested that the founder of the Qumran community was named Zadok, whose dates were roughly... 240 to 170. So there is the possibility that you have a Zadok who was in this line, but we have no record. 15. Elihu was the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Yaakov. Uh, Eleazar is only found here in the Apostolic Scriptures, a very common name in the first century amongst Jews, but it's only found here. Um, It was common in the Tanakh. Uh, there was an Eliezer closely associated with David. Luke lists the father of Jacob, Yeshua's grandfather, as Matat. And some have suggested that he and Matthew agree at this point. However, Luke and Matthew list different names for the father of this Matat or Mathan. The father of Joseph, that is the husband of Mary, is Jacob. And it could not have been missed by Matthew and his audience that this parallels the Joseph story of Genesis. Indeed, Joseph is so much a foreshadow of the Messiah in the minds of the sages that they speak of Messiah ben Yosef to describe the suffering Messiah. I've given you several references there. You're all aware of that, right? You've all heard of that? No? Some say no, some say yes. The rabbis couldn't reconcile with the fact that the the Tanakh seems to have two things going on, that the Messiah suffers, dreadfully suffers, even unto death for Israel. And yet, on the other hand, Messiah comes and defeats all his enemies. So how could you have a Messiah that comes and is killed for the, for the transgressions of his people, while at the same time have a Messiah that came and, and defeated all of his enemies and brought, and brought uh, victory to Israel? The only way they could conceive of it is saying there must be two Messiahs. And so they knew the one that was the victorious reigning king Messiah was the Messiah son of David, Messiah or, uh, Mashiach ben, ben David. But, the, uh, but some of the early sages said, but there must also be a Mashiach ben Yosef. Why did they ch- say Messiah, son of Joseph? Well, because for them, Joseph was very much a foreshadow of the Messiah. His life and, and, and what happened in his life was very much for them a foreshadowing of what would happen to the suffering Messiah. So, uh, we read, uh, the parallels are obvious. Number one, he was rejected by his brothers. 
Two, he was loved by his father. Three, he was considered as dead. Four, he returns to life. Five, he saves the world from famine. Six, he reigns as a king. And seven, he brings in Gentiles to be co-heirs with Israel. How does he bring Gentiles? His sons, right? His sons were born of an Egyptian mother. And so what does, ja what does Jacob have to do? He has to adopt them. So in the end, uh, Manasseh and Ephraim become Joseph's brothers, not his sons. These parallels are so close that some have suggested Matthew simply concocts the name of Yeshua's father and grandfather to make the parallel, but this again is illogical. Matthew was writing in a generation, some of whom could have been alive at the time of Yeshua and doubtlessly knew his family. More on track is to see this as yet another mark of divine providence in which the story of divine redemption shows the work of a single author who told the end from the beginning. By the way, if you want, uh, I don't know how many of you have read, uh, his uh, authorial name is D. Thomas Lancaster, but we all call him Daniel uh, Lancaster. How many of you read uh, The Mystery of the Gospel? But uh, I note here, pages 43 through 51, he does a, a masterful job of outlining the story of, uh, of Joseph and Asenath. Uh, it's an apocryphal work. That probably was written, or some people think it was written, by early followers of Yeshua. And it speaks to this very issue of the, of the bringing in of, these, of the Gentiles as, as uh, members of Joseph's family and Jacob's family and so forth. So, um, at least I would say Matthew wants us to have in mind an earlier Jacob and an earlier Joseph when he says that the father of Joseph was Jacob. At least he wants us to, to feel the parallels there. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Yeshua was born, who is called the Messiah. So this is where we have wanted to get all along, right? I mean, this is the... Matthew's genealogy differs from the normal way genealogies are listed because normally the first name in the list is the individual in view, while in this case the last name person is the primary emphasis. Matthew's obvious purpose is to bring us to Yeshua in his list of progenitors. Joseph was a very popular name in the first century Jewish community. At least 18 different Josephs are named by Josephus. The name means he adds. If it were not for Matthew's gospel, however, we would know precious little about Joseph. In the other gospels, he is only a bystander and the husband of Mary. Even Matthew hesitates to call Joseph the husband of Mary in the ensuing narrative. Only here. Yet Matthew lets us know that he was of the family of David, that he was upright, a man of visions or dreams, and resolutely obedient to the Lord. Once again, Matthew's description of Joseph shows clear parables to the Joseph of Genesis. While there is no clear evidence to say so, it is not out of the realm of possibility that the material Matthew used regarding Joseph came from Joseph himself and those who were his close companions. It is very reasonable to believe that he related his story to those to whom he was closest and that this testimony was carried along by those who followed Yeshua as their Messiah. It is tradition that Joseph died young. That's the tradition. Why the tradition? Well, because nothing's said about him. You know, at the cross, you have Mary, right? And Yeshua says to his beloved disciple, what does he say? Yeah. So why, why would he do that if his dad was still around? So m most have suspected that Joseph died, you know, within, within the 30 years or so of, of Yeshua's life, which is very possible. That being the case... 
And I mean, we can't we can't be dogmatic on it. But that being the case, here was yet another facet of human relationship with our, which our Lord came to understand by way of experience, and that is the death of a parent. Uh, he knows. He knows what it's like to to lose someone who is dear, and uh, so he understands that. Not that he wouldn't have understood it anyway, but for us, it's it's. It's more comforting to know that he actually went through that experience and that, that he understands what we feel when we lose a mom or a dad. The text of this verse has obviously been a point of concern as the manuscripts were copied, as the extant variants testify. Um, everybody understand what I mean by variants? Okay, let me give you just a real quick brief. The Bible that you have, there's no manuscript that's exactly like your Bible. None. Okay? There are only a few manuscripts that contain the whole apostolic scriptures. So you have this manuscript that has the Gospels and maybe part of John. You have this manuscript that has parts of John. You have this manuscript that has all of the Pauline epistles. You have this manuscript that has, you know, Acts and a few of Paul's epistles, so forth and so on. So how do you get the Bible that you have now? Well, the uh, the scholars have collated all of these manuscripts and seen where they all agree. Okay, that's a no-brainer. Where they all agree, that's it. Okay. But there's all kinds of places where they don't agree. So then there has to be this decision. Should we, is it this word or this word? Is it this phrase or it's this phrase? Is it spelled this way or spelled that way? And uh, it's called the textual, uh, the, the science of textual criticism. So here in this verse, we have some variants. Okay, not many, and only in four different sources. However, the variant is quite obvious. Um, why would we have it? This could be for a number of reasons, but perhaps the most obvious is that in this verse, there is a clear change in the verb to beget. Now look again, if you don't have it before you. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Yeshua was born, who was called the Messiah. That's different than what we've had all along in all the genealogies. X begat Y, right? Here we don't have Joseph begetting Yeshua. It says, and Yeshua was begotten, literally in the Greek. Throughout the listing of Matthew, the text reads, and X begat Y, using the active aorist form of genao, to... Uh, beget. Here, however, the verb changes to a passive form. Was begotten. It is easy to see how scribes, after writing the active form verse after verse, might have continued to write it in this verse as well. You know, you're writing, okay, such and such begat such and such, and such and such begat such and such, and such and such, and you're doing this all the way through 15 verses, and now you come to verse 16, and you just write the same thing. And Joseph begat Yeshua. And in fact, that's what we have in at least uh, uh, two uh, Greek manuscripts or families. So there are some Greek manuscripts that read, Joseph, who was betrothed to the Virgin Mary, begat Yeshua, who was called Messiah. This F13 is the Ferrar, F-E-R-R-A-R Greek manuscripts, which are collated together and called F. Uh, related readings are found in several of the church fathers. And I, for those of you that are interested, I give you the abbreviations there. Ambrosiaster and uh, Augustine, of, the Bishop of Hippo. Another Syriac manuscript found in 1894 called the, Syri the Sinai Syriac, which is a late 4th or early 5th century manuscript, also attested to the reading of uh, uh, Theta and, and Family 13, meaning that it said, Joseph begat Yeshua. Literally, Joseph, who had been betrothed to a virgin Mary, begat Yeshua, who was called Messiah. 
This reading is also attested in a 5th century document containing a dialogue between a Christian and a Jew called the Dialogue of Timothy and Aquila. Yet these four witnesses that we have stand in the face of all of the Greek manuscripts. It seems unwarranted then to presume that the many witnesses to the passive form of the verb was begotten should be disregarded on the relatively small weight of these four. But as you would expect, the liberal scholars have said, oh, well, the virgin birth doctrine was a late third or fourth century doctrine of the church. And they slipped it back into the manuscripts by changing this active that Joseph begat Yeshua to a passive that Yeshua was begotten. Well, I just don't find I don't find the evidence compelling whatsoever. You have four witnesses against literally thousands of others. If it had been the original reading, we would expect to have found more uh, uh, witness to it, right? You understand what I'm saying? So maybe you think, boy, Tim, you're getting pretty technical here. Well, okay. Well, if you you know if you want to read more on it, you can. But uh, we'll we'll talk more about the uh, the virgin birth uh, next uh, next week too. But it's a cardinal issue of our faith. It all is like a brick wall. It all hangs together or it all falls apart. It just is. That's the way the scriptures are. If we give up the virgin birth, what does that mean? That, that means that Yeshua has a sin nature, which means what? We are, of almost, uh, we, are of, we are all of all people most miserable because we have, not only are we following a deceiver, we have been so deceived ourselves that we are willing to g- give our lives up for something that's nonsense. And yet, if you were to ask, I would imagine that if you were to ask um, numbers of seminary graduates today to defend the virgin birth, they might say, oh, I'm not sure I believe in it. You know, and I sat at my desk and I thought, you know, because <clears throat> I remember uh, hearing an, an Israeli say to another to a, actually to a priest I was in a video I said do you really believe that you know do you really believe that and it, you know it was it was a comical video but uh, video but I looked and I thought yeah that is the way he puts that it sounds kind of crazy doesn't it you know in for a penny in for a pound if we believe God is the God of miracles why do we think this is one one too big for him or one that he wouldn't do I mean, you know, if we believe in one miracle, we have no problem believing in all miracles. It's not that we're just trying to hide behind miracles as the explanation to everything. That's not the point. The point is is that the scriptures teach this and that we shouldn't think it's beyond God to do it. Why wouldn't he bring his son in a miraculous way? Why wouldn't that be in concert with what God would do? It's the kind of thing that God does a lot of, in a lot of events as we read in the scriptures. So if it goes against our scientific, you know, our modern scientific ways of looking at things, well, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, my point is that either we say, yes, he can do miracles and he does do miracles, or we let the miracles go and we go, we go off and join Darwin. I mean, that, that's, I'm sorry to be so uh, black and white on it, but that seems to me the way it is. And uh, my liberal brothers and sisters, I, maybe I overuse the word liberal, but you know what I mean. My, my liberal brothers and sisters who want to have it both ways, you know, they want to chum up with the scientists who are saying hey, there's no miracles, and yet they want to come to church and have their faith intact. I, I'm sorry. I, I just think that's debunked of, of any reality. I think that's that's the heart of playing church. So uh, I don't have any I don't have any problem saying that these these four witnesses can be explained in other ways, and the and the majority of the witnesses of the scripture of the Greek scriptures that we have upon which our English Bible is based um, attest this verse saying that he was not begotten by Joseph, but it says Jacob was the father of Joseph, who was the husband of Mary by whom Yeshua was born. 
It is possible also that the active verb could have meant born, but it's used all the way through the genealogies to mean to beget. The Hebrew Matthews don't give us uh, anything different, really. The Dutule says, Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Miriam, from whom was born Yeshua, who is called Messiah, exactly what we have in the Greek. The Shem Tov, and Jacob begat Joseph. He was the husband of Miriam, and then it leaves out the phrase, the mother of Yeshua, who is called Messiah, which in Greek is Christos. And the Munster has essentially the same thing as the Dutule. So we have no, no, no real help from them other than that they're corroborating exactly what the Greek text says. Of course, the point in all of this is the virgin birth. For Matthew to change to the passive, who was begotten, from the string of active verbs, y beget, or x beget y, shows a clear intention on his part to emphasize the miraculous virgin birth of our master, something he will explicitly relate in the following verses. Yeshua was begotten. Okay? The, the, the writers have no problem with that. The question is, who did the begetting? Right? It, it wasn't Joseph. And, and Matthew's going to tell us explicitly that, it, that, that, she, that that which is in her womb, literally, is from the Holy or is out of the Holy Spirit. That's what, that's what Matthew says. Now, Luke is a little more of a, of, a, of a doctor, right? I mean, he he knows how to put things that are very delicate into very nice language. And so what does he say? The, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you and the power of the Almighty will come upon you. Well, overshadow you and, you know, and come upon you is, is good begetting language. But he does it in such a, a way to uh, give God the glory and not in any way besmirch uh, this whole process as being dirty or, or, or something that should be kept private. But he, do, he, do, he chooses beautiful words as a doctor. He knows how to do this. I guess doctors have to have a bedside manner. Oh, sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Good Good point. The, the, the statement's being made that um, why would you have Mary in here at all if it weren't for the fact that he's, that he's emphasizing the virgin birth? And exactly. That's exactly why. Okay. This was an early sticking point to those who had rejected Yeshua. That this is, is evident from the rabbinic teaching that Yeshua was known as Ben Pantera or Ben Pandira, which some have suggested was a deliberate corruption of Huios Tes Parthenon, son of the virgin. Now, they're saying Pandera is a kind of a mix-up of the Greek word Parthenon, just because I guess it starts with a P. But it's difficult to see why the Greek word Parthenos would not have been clearly transliterated into the Hebrew. Two scholars who have done a lot of work on this, uh, Goldstein and Hereford, consider this enough to dismiss the su- suggestion. Other suggestions for the name Ben Pantera or Pandera or Panthera, and there are several other spellings, have yielded little of substance. Origen, in his disputation with Celsus, claims to, uh, this is a disputation. You know the you know the disputations that they had, right? They would bring they, they would in a in a village or in a township, they would eventually uh, uh, tell the leading rabbi. Okay, you're going to have a debate with our leading bishop. And if you win, you can stay. If you lose, you're out of here. And they always lost, even if they won. So um, uh, this is similar to what you have, where you have these open debates between a leading Christian theologian and a Jew as a way of of belittling him and making everyone realize that Jews, you, you don't want to be one of those. Anyway, in this disputation... Origen claims to have heard that the Jews teach the father of Yeshua to be Panther, another way of spelling it, 
who was a Roman soldier, but as Goldstein and others note, this seems far-fetched. There may have been an early tradition that the family name akin to Panther was in the line of Mary. A document dated to the 7th century, which is quite late, called The Teaching of Jacob, records a genealogy of Yeshua as follows. His mother Mary is the daughter of Jochum, who is the son of Panther, a brother Melchi of the seed of Nathan, the son of David. So... At least in some traditions, there was this idea that there was on Mary's side this name Panther or Pandera or something. While this is quite late, therefore, therefore having little weight in the argument, it still might suggest that an early tradition existed that one of Mary's relatives had the family name Panther or something like this, and this was carried forward in the writing of the sages. There's another break in the style of this verse. Not only does Matthew change from the active to the passive, instead of saying Joseph begot, it simply says Yeshua was begotten. He also notes a change in the manner in which he writes that from whom Mary was Yeshua. That's literally. Our, our, our English translation says uh, Jacob was the father of, of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom. Literally, it says out of whom uh, or from whom was Yeshua. In the previous list, when a woman is mentioned, it is in the form of X begat Y out of Z. Sorry for the math symbols there, but you understand. So every time it says, you know, such and such beget out of Rahab. Here the passive begotten has the spirit of God in view, and thus there is no human progenitor. As Davies and Allison comments, we do not read that Joseph begat Jesus by Mary. Mary's case stands by itself. It is an anomaly. The break in Matthew's pattern thus reflects a break in the course of history. God is about to do something new. If Matthew alone gives us what little information we have about Joseph, he does not follow suit with Mary. Mary, or Maria in the Greek for Hebrew Miriam, in Matthew's narrative has no independent identity. She is known as the mother of Yeshua, the vessel of the Ruach, and the betrothed of Joseph. That's all we know. She is referenced in Babylon, uh, the Talmud Sanhedrin 67 as the mother of Ben Pandira, where the derogatory label of adulteress is given. And, of course, this is why the church ordered the burning of the Talmud both because the Talmud considers Mary to be an adulteress and because it flat out says that Yeshua was a deceiver and deceived the nation of Israel. And that's why in later editions of the Talmud, those were expunged. Those were, those were edited out. They're in, the, they're, they're in the newer versions, but in the older versions, they were taken out because they said, okay, maybe we can publish the Talmud if we just don't say anything bad that the church you know, really get, get us for. But this accords with the early tradition among the Pharisees that Yeshua was of illegitimate birth. So, I mean, this is not something that the, that the later rabbis figured out. It was a tradition that was already uh, afoot in the time of Yeshua. How in the world could it have gotten around that Yeshua was the product of an illegitimate relationship. All he would have had to do was go ask Mary, but then you'd have to believe her. Right. Of course, he was also known as a drunkard, right? And he was also known as uh, a bunch of other things. So uh, th there were early uh, rumors that uh, floated about Yeshua, and we see some of these continuing on in, in later rabbinic literature. 
But the fact that Matthew clearly alludes to the virgin birth in his use of the passive was begotten, or even was born out of Mary, we might say, fits his purpose to show the legal heirship of Yeshua, not his physical lineage. In the ancient world, the declaration of a father that this is my son was sufficient to confirm legal heirship. The Mishnah states in Baba Batra 8.6, If a man said, This is my son, he may be believed. We may also reference the words of Isaiah 43.1, I have called you by name... We could say, therefore, you are mine. We may presume that Joseph gave his name to Yeshua, and as such, Yeshua was viewed legally as uh, Joseph's son. He would have been known then as Yeshua ben Yosef. To the name Yeshua is added who was called Messiah, Christos, as noted above, is from the Greek verb meaning to anoint. This answers to the Hebrew Mashiach, which likewise means one who is anointed. The term Messiah is first a title and only secondly a proper name. Here with the addition of who is called, the term is functioning as a title. As far as Matthew is concerned, Yeshua is the long-awaited promised Redeemer. So, all of the generations from Abraham to David are 14 and so forth and so on. And uh, notice all my comments here. I just refer you to pages 14 through 16 above because we already talked through all this at the, at the beginning. So there was no need to, uh, to reiterate it. Uh, so we come to the end of the genealogy of Yeshua. And have I given you any satisfactory answers? Probably not. I haven't given many myself. So it's a challenge. Uh, I challenge some of you who are those kinds of people who love to put uh, jigsaw puzzles together to, uh, I don't know, put all these names on cards and start trying to figure out how you can match them all up and what would happen. But you say, well, Tim, are, are you content in your faith to rest assured that this is that these genealogies are true so that you can trust what the gospel writer says? Yeah, I am. I think there is enough uh, evidence to show that genealogy listings in the ancient world were not the way that we think they should be and that they had different purposes. But I'm also – I'm going to continue to have in the back of my mind that there's something else going on here that uh, we probably need a little more work to, to discover. We'll, do, we'll, start, we'll start with uh, verse 18 next week. Okay, are there any questions, comments? Okay. Um, I'm just curious. Do we have any speculation on um, how Mary's family felt about her uh, illegitimate pregnancy? Yeah, appearing to have had uh, um, been unfaithful to her betrothed. No. One of the things that we discover in Scripture, and the, I have... Um, I have attended a numbers of lectures by women scholars on this topic, and it is the silence of women in the scriptures. Now, you know, Luke has, has the so-called Magnificat, the Mary's song, and and it's very much patterned after Hannah's song. Uh, but by and large, we don't hear a lot of women, and we don't know very much about Mary. We don't hear her say very much. We, we we hear people talking to her, and we hear people talking about her, but we don't very often hear her talk. I mean, if you go through the, for instance, here's an example. You go through the first, uh, go through the, the chapters from 12 to, to when Sarah dies, chapter 12 through when Sarah dies, and see how many words you, you count that she says. I mean, there are hardly any. She laughs. That's all you hear from her. She just she just doesn't. I mean. And um, there was one uh, uh, woman scholar who was bemoaning this fact and using it as as a um, an example of how misogynistic the scriptures really are. And after the lecture, because I didn't I didn't want to ask her this during question and answer period, I, I uh, she actually sat down at the table I was at and I said, I, you know, I appreciated the, the paper; it was very stimulating. Whatever. So you know, I have an, I have another. Um, 
thought on that. She goes, oh, okay, what? And I said, well, <clears throat> you know, it's the teaching of, of our sages as well as my master that, um, that one is seen to be wise when one is quiet and uh, that oftentimes we do our best learning in our silence. I said, is there a possibility that rather than seeing the women as being something downtrodden because they don't speak a lot, is it possible that really what the, what the scripture writers are saying is these are women of valor who get a lot done without having to talk all the time? In other words, what the scriptures are telling is just opposite of what the caricature is of women, that women are always talking, and the scriptures have all of these women not talking. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong to talk. I'm just saying if there's an overall, overall impression we get of the women that are listed in the Bible, that, that are listed in, in, a, in any sense of uh, propriety and, and righteousness, they're giants. They're just giants. And, and this is no more seen than in the, the death and resurrection of Yeshua. I mean, the women come to the fore when the going gets rough. And I said, they don't do so by, you know, by saying a lot. And so it's the, the, you know, when everything is said and done, more things are said than done. And uh, the idea that what we do is what lasts, not necessarily just what we say. So maybe that's part of what we have going on in Mary. She is an Eshet Chayil. She is a woman of valor. Her, uh, her integrity and her righteousness is seen in, in what she does. I mean, just can, I mean, um, yeah, we'll go on and on about this in the virgin birth. By the way, if you, uh, if you want to read the classic book on this, it's by J. Gresham Machen, M-A-C-H-E-N, and it's called, it's a real catchy title, The Virgin Birth. Um, <clears throat> Uh, J. Gresham Machen wrote a classic, classic book on the virgin birth, and it's uh, it's a full full book, so it's not something you're gonna you're gonna finish in an, in a hour or two. But um, at any rate, if you want to study it, that would be a good one to read in the next week. Okay, any other questions, comments? Okay, we'll do it next week. You've been listening to the commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. If you like this teaching and want to hear more, please visit us at TorahResource.com. Join us again next week as Tim takes us through another verse-by-verse lesson in the Gospel of Matthew.